Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and to see what you'd have us to see. And we ask you to just give us a leading from your Holy Spirit on what it is you want us to see from this chapter and this psalm. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 98. Sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness has he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He has remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with a harp, with the harp and with the voice of the psalm. With trumpets and the sound of the cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof, and the world and they, and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands, and let the hills be joyful together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, with righteousness shall he judge the world and the, and the people with equity." So we're going to look at this uh, psalm. This is a very positive psalm. There's no, David is no, or whoever wrote it is not depressed and angry. It's a very, let's, let's make out uh, a joy. And it starts out, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. And this word for new means new, fresh, renewed. And God is wanting us to come to him with a renewed expression each day and he wants to give us newness of life every day if we're living on what we've learned from a year ago or two years ago or even last week we're in a place that God does not want us to be he wants to give us fresh new blessings every day and how do we get that we get into his word we get into study we get it we listen to him and we get new information when I, and I've said this, when I study the scriptures, even though I've read them through, I try to read them through every year, the whole scriptures, and I study, and I tear things apart. Even when I teach something that I've taught before, I go back and I review it all and say, God, what is new for this particular time? And, I, and I've shared with you how many times, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, but you read something, you've read it before, and all of a sudden you go, I don't remember this verse in there, God. You know, I just don't remember this. And I've made fun. There are times when I've asked God, you know, when did you put this verse in here, God? Because I just don't remember. And I know that he hasn't put a new verse in there, but I'm kind of having fun with him. Mm-hmm. You know, God, this is brand new. I've never seen this before. When did you put this here? And, you know, this is where we need to be. If we are living on old revelation, old teaching, then we're not walking with a God of newness. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them new information each time that he met with them. He wasn't sitting there saying, well, I've told you this 5,000 times now. Here, you know, have you maybe you finally gotten it. He gave them something new to live on. It would be almost like eating the same food every single day for, the, for your entire life. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever worked in any restaurant or something, you, know, you get to the place where you just get sick and tired of that particular type of food Sometimes, depending on how the variety, but after a while, you just get tired of the same stuff. God is saying, I want something new for you. I want you to grow. I want you to get beyond the, the milk. I want you to get beyond the, the cereal. I want you to get into the hard-to-digest food and, and challenge yourself. And he says, 
Sing unto the Lord a new song, a renewed song. And this is why it's important for us, and I challenge us, you know, to look back over our life and say, am I growing? Am I getting closer to God? Am I learning new stuff? Am I more godly today than I was six months, a year, two years, three years? You know, look back long enough to say, am I growing? Do I have a new song to sing to God? And why do we sing that song? For he has done marvelous things. And I, the, the word here for marvelous is beyond our capabilities or our powers or difficult. God does things that are beyond our power to do. And think about all these things that go on in your life and you go, some people worry about all the stuff and then they watch God do these marvelous things. Others of us kind of just sit back and say, okay, God, I'm waiting to see what you're going to do and worry very little. God will do the things we can't do. Always. God has never let me down, so I have learned not to spend a lot of time worrying about the things that I can't handle or that I have no control of because I know he's going to do them anyway. Even the things I can control, I just let God take care of because... But there are people who worry about everything and everyone and they're all their kids and all their, all their friends and all the other people. And, but we don't want to worry about worry. God has done marvelous things for us. And it's amazing when you look over your life, look at the things that God does for you and start blessing him and thanking him for that and and putting everything on him, Annie. We see it says that God has done marvelous things, and that's why he says sing a new song. Because we're looking at all that he's doing, and we have new things to be thankful for and new things to praise him for and new things to be joyful about. When you see somebody who is usually miserable, they're usually in the past, you know, all the bad things that have happened to them, or they're totally worried about the future, that they have no control over and they end up being miserable in the present. We need to be joyful in the present because we can't change the past. It's gone. There's nothing we can do about the past. We need to forget the past because we can do nothing about what is already past. Well, good things to remember are good, but you still don't want to live even in the past on the good because the good is not new blessing. Well, being joyful, being joyful is what it's all about and we, there is a very great value in being somebody who is ready to sing songs to God. When my kids were growing up, and even when I was growing up, we would sing in the car all the time. All the time we would sing uh, in the car and just praise God and enjoy just singing. Because it's, there is something about singing, even if you can't sing, that is a praise to God and he asks for it. God is not looking for beautiful, professional singing, and he makes it very clear in the scriptures. He's looking for a joyful noise to him. Why? Because there is something in song that really can praise God. And this is why it's important for us. And, and I've shared this. You know, when I was in the restaurants, there were often times when I just wanted to sing for, for a minute while I took the trash out for the minute or two that it took. Just sing a chorus and just foc- refocus back on God. And music can take us either direction, closer to God or far away from God for some of the songs that are out there. I mean, if you listen to the wrong songs, you can get taken away from God pretty quick. 
And this is what happened to me. And one story I took over where they were playing rap music. And I didn't want to change everything on the first day I walked in. But after about two days, I started understanding the words that I was hearing. I'm going, I am not listening to this garbage every day of, every, of, of the week. You know, because it was all about sex and rape and murder and all these other things. I'm going, no, we aren't. I spend too much time here to be listening to this kind of music. Music has a very important part in our life. And God is all about music that, that lifts him up. When we read about uh, Lucifer and the way he was created, that he's described with pipes being built into his body. It makes him sound as if he was built as an individual entity that could play music to praise God, which is also why he uses music so much to draw people away from God. And it's not the music itself that is, that is bad it is, or good. It is the words that are attached to it. My oldest son used to love DC Talk back in the days when they were doing rap, Christian rap music. And he'd walk around school singing their, singing their songs and people were looking at him, listening to him like, what is this song you're singing? Because they'd never heard it. And it was just straight rap music that was Christian words and good <laughs> words. So it's not the music itself that's bad. It's the words that get attached to the music that can be good or bad. And God is always saying, Make songs that are joyful, that are good, that are lifting him up. Because when you're lifting him up and you're praising him, you get lifted up and praised in the same thing. And usually songs can bring you out a lot faster than just about any other thing. So if you're in a place where you're depressed or not focusing on God, start listening to some songs that you like about God and you'll find yourself, or better yet, sing them. <laughs> and bring yourself into focus with God and lift it up along with, with God. And this is why I said I did this all the time in the restaurant. I would just go out and I'd sing a quick chorus, you know, and just refocus on God and come back in refreshed and, and motivated and be able to keep the smile on the face and, and able to handle the pressures that were going on because I refocused on what God was doing in my life. And here he's saying, sing that new song for he has done marvelous things because that's our reason. And then it says, his right hand and his holy arm has gotten him the victory. Has gotten him the victory. And this is something we look at. Right hand, we've talked about right hand. That's the hand of approval. Okay? We still have the term, this is my right hand person, or I couldn't do this without, without my right hand. We're saying this is the person that I depend on that that is the side of approval and conversely especially in the in the older language your left hand was the side of disapproval and dishonor and but here he says that God's right hand and his arm has gotten him the victory now because he's victorious and he is in us we get victory but the victory is for him not necessarily for us. This is why when we go through something hard in our life and go through trials and temptations and we make it through something successfully, the one who gets the victory is God. He gives us the strength to go through it. He's the one that's lifted up. And sometimes when we go through hardships, it is not for, our, for people to look at us and say, well, gee, you know, look at this person. But they get to see God bring us through something. 
And the example that I've used is the time when I was six months in with the nerd attack and I'm on my crutches doing what I always do in the church. There was nothing good for me about being on crutches for six months and in pain for six months. But about a year later when somebody came up to me and said, you know, you encouraged me by watching you be faithful and it was obvious you were in pain. So all that I went through was not for me. It was for God to get glory and somebody else to be encouraged. There was nothing good about it to me. It was painful. It hurt. And there was nothing good for me, but God used it for good in somebody else's life. Sometimes we're going to go through those things. In this one particular time, I just happened to hear the good for it and be able to use that as an example of how God can use a bad thing in somebody's life and make it a good thing to somebody else. When we get to heaven, we're going to see those other areas of our life that God says, this is what you did. You went through this, but this is who it helped. And that's where the song Thank You comes in, where they may come up to heaven and say, I just want to thank you for being faithful in this because I'm the, one, I'm the result from this or my strength came from watching you or whatever it might be. We have no clue half the time on what we're doing and how it's touching people's lives. And you want to think about it. How many times have you watched somebody who probably has no clue how you were watching their life to see how they, how they went through something? You, know, you were watching them and you go, oh, that's how a Christian walks through <laughs> the pain of the death of a loved one or the sickness of a loved one or the, the attacks of individuals. And you look at them and say, oh, there's an example. And you may or may not ever go to share with them that you learned so much from them. Sometimes it's going to be the pastor that you watch, and you watch that pastor live a life. Sometimes it's a Sunday school teacher. Sometimes it's a relative who's living for Christ. But you watch them, and you say, oh, okay, this person's a great example. And that's when Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are to live a way that people can imitate us and say, this is how we walk. And the thing about it is we are, as Christians, always being watched. If you don't think so, start checking your kid the way your kids behave and the way they act and say, are they acting the way that I act? And the one thing that scares us most is how many times have you ever said, well, I will never be like my mom and dad. I didn't like this part of them. And then you find yourself saying and doing the same exact things they did. You look and see your kids and usually our kids mimic the things that we like the least about ourselves more than the things we like the best about ourselves. And they usually go to an extreme on those. Which is why when, Jesus, when God says that the sins of the fathers will be going on to the fourth generation, it's not just because of a curse. It is a learned behavior in many cases. And they usually take it further than we do. If you've got a bad temper and you, you let your, rain, your, your, your temper rain, then you watch your kids get a worse time than you had. If you have a sin in your life, you see your kids go further in that sin than you did. Whether it's drugs or alcohol or lying or stealing or whatever it is, you watch your kids go further than you ever went with it, mostly because they see this as a normal lifestyle and they take it deeper into that sin. And this is something we see a lot of in the kids that we deal with here. They've grown up in a way that they've seen very sinful lifestyles, and to them they are normal because they don't know any better. 
and is, and we end up trying to teach them, but if they continue in the, the path they're going, they're going to be doing just what their parents did deeper. And this happens. And it can also happen spiritually. We can be a good example, teach our kids, get them in. And the pilgrim said we want our kids to stand on our shoulders. They wanted them to start where they were at and go forward and, and deeper. So it happens on the good side too. If you are a good example and you're teaching your kids and the deeper things, then they start at a much higher level and go deeper with God. And this is the thing that my kids are starting to realize as they're starting to branch off and get to churches that I'm not part of and they're realizing, wow, dad did, did teach us some things. Mom taught us some things and they're realizing they know more than a lot of people and they're started at a higher level and they get in the word and they go deeper because they had the right example. And this is where we do good and bad usually goes deeper on either direction. Okay, now yes, people can go the opposite way. <laughs> we, we see that all the time. You know, somebody who's bad gets saved and they start going the other direction and that's good. Sometimes somebody who was raised right with good godly parents will go the wrong way too. It's not a, but we also see the majority of them go the other direction. Righteous parents will raise righteous kids and those kids will go forward. Unrighteous parents re raise unrighteous kids normally and they go deeper into that unrighteousness. And this is what we look at. But God can get the victory. God can make the changes in our lives. And he will redeem all the bad. He redeems what we have done wrong. And this is the good news for somebody who gets saved later in life and they realize I raised my kids wrong and my kids are going the wrong direction. Pray for them because God can redeem the time. He can bring them back. He can, he can get hold of them and change their lives and he's the one that can do it. He's the one that gets victory. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness has he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. God makes known his salvation. Most of the time he uses his people to share his salvation. But you know, God can do it without us if he really wants to. It's kind of interesting listening to, to different testimonies out of the Muslim world where people are really seeking after God and don't know him. And Jesus, in many, many of these people's lives, has shown up in a dream telling them, I'm the one that you're seeking. Why? Because they truly are seeking after God, and they're not in an environment where they can hear the gospel, and especially in some of these Muslim countries where if you, if you share the gospel, you're going to lose your life, so people are very slow to share. And sometimes there's just not a Christian anywhere near them. But they're truly seeking after God, and God says, okay, you're seeking after me? Here. This is me. Is that the norm? No. Because usually there's a Christian somewhere in their, in their circle, somewhere. Maybe only one Christian. And we hear this lots of times from missionaries that go into these worlds where they may be the only Christian in two or three communities, but people know who they are. And they're watching them. They're saying, is this person truly representing something? Is this person showing his salvation? But God will make known his salvation. In the book of Revelation, after the, and during the tribulation time, we, if you remember when, in the Revelation class, there's an angel flying in the world, you know, declaring the gospel. God doesn't need us. He just gives us the privilege of sharing the gospel. 
He could do it all on his own. It's not that hard. He doesn't need us, but he gives us that privilege. And I hope you understand sharing the gospel is a privilege. Because, number one, we can do it in this country without going to jail, without losing our life. Without losing a head, yes. There are a lot of places where you cannot do that. A lot of places where you're going to jail if you give the gospel out. And may never come out. And some places where they'll just kill you straight out. So he will make known his salvation. I love. I mean, when we read the scriptures, we don't look at these things where God says he will do something or he is, he is the one that do, does it because it's kind of interesting to see he is our defender, he is our protector, he's our redeemer, he's our salvation. We want to look at what God does in the scripture. There's a lot of things he does that we don't give him enough credit for. He will fill our mouths. He will tell us what to speak. He will give us protection. He will be our defender. If we would just let God be our defender more often, we would have a lot better life. Because I've told you over and over as we've gone, especially the book of Psalms, if I try to defend myself, I always mess it up. It doesn't matter what it is. I mess it up when I try to defend myself. I just need to, and I have learned pretty well, to let God defend me. Just back off and let God be the defender of myself. I don't need to defend my reputation. I don't need to defend who he is. I don't, all he's asked me to do is share the gospel. Now, I get into apologetics. I can defend what I believe and why I believe. But if I'm not going to sit there and say, if, you're, if somebody wants to attack me, I'm not going to sit there and try to defend myself because... Usually when you try to defend yourself, you cannot defend yourself without somehow sounding arrogant <laughs> and defense, you know, that you have problems. It's much easier just to let God be the one saying, I'm going to, I'm going to defend you. And usually he'll defend you with other people being your defenders. And it doesn't come across in that way. And then he says, his righteousness has he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. His righteousness. And righteousness is obedience to God's law and conforming to God's nature. That's what true righteousness is. And I love the second half, conforming to God's nature. Lynn, you want to close? of being conformed to his nature. And how do we get conformed to his nature? We've talked about that. He indwells us and he changes who we are. So again, it's God who does the changing. It's God who does the work. If I try to change myself, all I'm doing is disciplining my flesh, trying to get my flesh to do the right things. And that only works for a period of time because the flesh is sinful and the flesh does not like to be tamed and cannot be tamed for that matter and this is one of the things that people tell you when you deal with wild animals that have been tamed that those people that work with them have to always remember that that animal is wild even though it's tamed even though it seems to be a good animal it is a wild animal, and given a chance, will act upon its nature. 
uh, its instinct. Uh, Siegfried and Roy, I can't remember which of the two, but he turned his back on one of his animals one time thinking that it was okay, and then he ended up being mauled because he for a moment forgot that his tamed wild animal was wild. And for us, our flesh cannot be tamed, which is why in second, in Corinthians 2.20, we are told that it must be crucified. Our flesh must be put to death. It cannot be tamed. Galatians 2.20. Yep. It cannot be tamed. It has to be crucified. And God will crucify our flesh, and he will give us a new nature. And as we talked about, he, he indwells us, he fills us with himself, and then he changes who we are so that we become more like him. And the victory is won because we've surrendered to him. Not because I have sat there and said, okay, I'm gonna, I gotta quit this, I gotta quit this, I gotta quit doing this. I, you know, I just, because number one, we can't give up what our, what our flesh wants. It just doesn't happen. And God will show as he changes us, he shows our, his righteousness to the heathen or the unsaved. He, the, the heathen or the, is the unsaved. It's not a term we use very often anymore. But anybody who is not a Christian is considered, according to scripture, the heathen. Now, in our politically correct world, we would not use that term toward them. Uh, so... Yes, well, if, not, if, if more than three-quarters of the world, probably. But this is a term that used to be used all the time, and it's not used anymore. Verse 3, He has remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Who's the he in this verse? Is God. God has remembered that means to recall. And God never forgets, and, and, and we technically don't honestly ever forget because everything that we've ever seen or heard is in our brain. But we've talked about this. If you do not recall information, essentially you forget it because it's not at the forefront of your mind. When we talked earlier, when people are bitter and angry toward people, why do they stay bitter and angry toward people? Because they keep thinking about it, right? It's in the forefront of their mind. Well, this person 28 years ago did this to me, and I'm going to rehearse it every day until, you because know, I don't want to forget it, and they're so, they're so bad, and they're so, and they've done this to me. How many of us remember much of what happened to us even last week or a month ago if we don't think about it? You know, ask you what you had for dinner last, you know, last week, and most of us don't remember what we had for dinner. But we remember the person who was mean to us 30 years ago. Why? Because we put it in the forefront of our mind. If we really, truly want to get to the place where we have essentially forgotten it, don't recall it. And God says he remembered, he recalled his mercy and his truth toward Israel. His mercy, his forgiveness of them, and his truth. And remember this morning we talked about the difference between facts and truth. We want to keep this in mind. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He gives us truth. 
We are adopted. We are forgiven. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are perfect in God's sight. Satan likes to throw at us a whole bunch of facts that are, not, that are essentially true, but they're not true because God has covered them in the blood. We need to spend more time living in the truth that God gives us than in these, la- these facts which are in, in reality lies because Satan never gives you the fact without trying to twist it. Have you ever been in a place where somebody speaks a whole bunch of facts but they present them in such a way that they look like bad things? And of course, this is the perfect time to be talking about this. You can't watch TV right now without certain facts being thrown at you to try to be twisted to make people look bad called politicians. (laughs) Okay, And not everything they tell you is a fact, but there's a lot of things that get in there that get twisted, they get lifted out of context. And if you do just a little bit of research on what they say, you find out that they have twisted it in ways that are not actually true. And this is, but they'll point to this and go, it is a fact. They did say this three sentences, you know, these three words in the middle of a huge, huge message. And they were usually saying the opposite of what, what they were lifted out. We're we, really representing so necessarily us. We need to be careful as we look at these things and say, what is the truth on these things? What is the truth that God gives us? And we get into the word and we look at who we are in Christ. Who are we? When Satan comes and he starts attacking us with these facts of things that we have done, and God says that it's under the blood. When we stand before the Father in the Bema seat, and Satan tries to accuse us and say, well, he did this, this, and this, and Jesus stands up as our defender and says, Father, that's under the blood, that's paid for. He throws out facts and Jesus gives the truth. It's under the blood. It's gone. It's irrelevant. He goes, I object. That's under the blood. He can't bring that up. The truth is, if we are saved and if we are Christian, that we are forgiven and that we're covered. And here he's saying he remembers his mercy and his truth toward Israel. And if, we've, if you've been with us during our time of the study of the Pentateuch, Israel is a pretty stiff-necked, rebellious people. But God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to care for his, for his descendants. Some of them are going to get saved. Some of them are just protected because God said he was going to because of his promise to Abraham. And so the truth is that God's going to care for them. The God protects them. God blesses them. Not because they deserve it, but because he says he would. Why does he bless and protect us? Not because we deserve it, because we definitely don't deserve it. But because we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and God looks down and he says, these are my perfect children, I'm going I'm to protect them. If he looks past the blood, which he can't, because he, by divine fiat, says that he won't, and divine fiat means command, he says he won't look below the blood because the blood covers and he's not going to stir the blood, stir the things up out of the blood and look at it. He says, I see nothing but my perfect children. Satan comes to him and says, this, that, and the other thing. And he goes, I don't see that. And this is why in, in Zechariah we talk about one of the greatest stories is in, in I believe it's chapter 3, where the, Satan is coming to attack Joshua the high priest. And the very first thing God says is, take off these filthy garments and put new garments on him. And then he kind of turns to Satan, okay, now what's your problem? 
What was it you wanted to say about this man? God still does that for us. We are in the righteousness of Christ. Satan comes to accuse us and he goes, uh, I don't see that. What, you know, what exactly is your problem? Because he's accusing us of things that God does not see. Very special. God is going to be victorious because he has paid the price. He has paid the price for his victory over everything on this world. And the only thing that people are going to be judged for even is the fact that they don't know Jesus Christ and they don't, aren't clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when they stand before the white throne judgment, they're going to be shown every time they rejected Jesus Christ and they'll be cast into hell for rejecting Christ. Because the sins are covered. And it's, but they're going, to stand, they're going to try to stand before God in their, their own righteousness and he's going to say, wrong clothes, get out of here. You're here in filthy clothing. You're out of here. You're gone. You're going to be punished. And he shows his salvation to the ends of the earth. The world gets to see the salvation that God gives us. And it's God who gives it to us. And this is the greatness of God, is that he does all the work. He sent his son to die. He resurrected his son. When we accept the Son as, as, our, as our Savior, He clothes us in righteousness. He makes us adopted. He, puts, he gives us the Holy Spirit as the first payment of all the other payments that we're going to see for all of eternity. He does all the work. He's the one that protects us. He's the one that defends us. He says, just hide in me and I'll be your defender. We need to really start understanding that it's all Him. This is why we cannot ever take glory in anything that God does in our life and how he uses us, because it's him. If it's me, it's worthless. And this is when we as Christians stand before the Bema seat of Christ. He's going to throw all the works that we have done in the, in the fire. Anything that I have done in my own strength burns up. Whether it's wood, hay, or stubble, Stubble is pretty worthless. It's not good for anything. Hay has got some value for some things. It feeds animals pretty much. Wood is pretty substantial. There are some good things that we do that others take as good that is going to be burnt up because I did it. The things that will survive are the things God does through me. The gold and silver, what has he done through me that I have allowed him to do by getting out of the way and letting him work? And those are what we're going to get rewarded for. And this is why he says he will show his salvation to the world. To all the earth will see his salvation because it's him that is doing the work. And it's very important for us to be, be understanding that. Verse 4 says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. And we've talked about this word for noise a couple of times. This word is a war cry. It's a, it's a cheer. It's a loud noise. I mean, it is not song at this point. He's saying make a loud noise. And the example I have used in the past is if you've ever lived near a stadium for not so much high school games, unless you're in a really competitive, but anywhere with a big college or a pro team, and you live anywhere near their stadium, you could live within you know, my, uh, two to three miles, and you hear the cheers go up. This is the kind of noise that he's talking about. A loud, ringing cheer. The, if you've ever watched any of the old movies where these 
back in the old days when they used swords and stuff and, and they would charge and they would yell at the top of their voice and part of that was to try to scare or intimidate the, the enemy. Like, here we come, we're coming in victory and both sides are yelling at each other as they come together. That's the kind of noise that he's talking about. A loud noise. And he says, and make it a joyful one. Be joyful. And that's why I kind of like the idea of the, the stadium roars. The roar of the stadium when, when, the, when their team does something good and you can hear it a long ways away. You don't have to be in the stadium to hear that roar. And that's the kind of thing he's saying. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise. And again, it's the same word for noise. Actually, no, this is a different word for noise. And it means to burst forth. Burst forth with this loud noise. Not just make a noise, but burst forth with something that is praising God and rejoice rejoice and sing praises one of the things most of us as Christians do not do enough of is rejoicing with God and this is when we start the way we rejoice with God is we spend time looking at what he has done for us not what he did 20 years ago even though that's good but what is he doing for us now and if you can't find something that God's doing for you now, you need to refocus and really look at what he's doing. God does great blessings and provides for us. When we start focusing on all the wrong and all the bad, we're on the wrong focus. We need to focus on God and say, God, I love you. You've got a plan. Even if everything in your life seems to be going wrong at the time, you look to God and say, God, you have a plan for this. And that's a time when you look at two things. Number one, God has a plan. Number two, all things work together for good. God has got a good purpose for you no matter what you're going through, even if everything seems to be going wrong. God has a plan. David, after he murdered Uriah, stayed away from God for about a year. But God still had a plan. David's miserable, but God has used that to show how his mercy, when he finally got David to admit that he was wrong, God was merciful to him. You think about this. David had committed two capital crimes. He'd committed adultery and murder. He deserved to die, and yet God was merciful to him and said, you're not going to die, David. I'm not going to give you the penalty because I've got mercy on you. God shows his mercy. And we don't want to look and say, you know, well, David was really bad, so we can be bad. No, the key was David really, truly honored God for most of his life. David did some wonderful things. He went up to fight Goliath. When nobody else in the, in the entire army was willing to trust God and go against Goliath. You know, anyone in Saul's army, including Saul himself, could have gone up to, against Goliath and won with God's help if they had just decided to trust in him. But it took David to come along and, and with the faith to trust and say, that giant's gone. He's defying God. He's defying my God. He is going to die because God is going to deliver him. How many times are we intimidated by things that we should not be intimidated by? We get all these people that are attacking Christians and Christianity and the Bible God will be defend himself. Sometimes he uses us. Sometimes he'll use others. At the very least, we pray for these people that are attacking them, that God will put the right person in their path. 
but we learn what we believe, we learn how to defend what we believe, and we defend to the best of our ability and let God get the glory. Because his word is true. Truth always comes out on top in the long run. It may seem like it's being beat up for a long time. Evolution started existing in 1850. Now, if the church had actually started defending and saying, this is what God says, we're going to stand on God's word, it probably would have been able to hold its own. But they tried to compromise. (laughs) They tried to compromise the truth and the lie got spoken without any uh, any contradiction and eventually got to where it almost seemed to be true. It's starting to be fought back now as people are stepping up and saying, no, there's no, there is no proof for this. There is no standard for this. And this problem that we have is if the lie is spoken often enough, people start to believe that it's real. And the good understanding of this is when, when people will talk about the separation of the church and state. They believe that those words are in the Constitution and they are not in the Constitution. But if you ask anybody who's trying to stand up for it, they will swear that it's in the Constitution because they've never read the Constitution. It's not in the Constitution. It's in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson. And actually, it was written to say that the government will never interfere with the church. So it was used for exactly the opposite side that it's being used today. Because Jefferson said, you don't have to worry about it. There's a wall of separation between the church and the state that the that the state cannot interfere with the church. When we're seeing the state now trying to interfere with churches all the time and using this statement turned on its ears. But again, it's one of those things, if you say the lie long enough, loud enough, it starts to be believed as true. The Sunday school class this morning was talking a lot about this, about how many things about Bible stories do we believe just because we've seen them on movies and we've done them in plays and they were really talking about the birth of Christ and a lot of things in the birth in the story of Jesus' birth that are not necessarily in the Bible. And we believe them completely. You know, most people will swear that Mary rode that the Bible says that Mary rode into Bethlehem on a on an animal and all it says is she got there. Uh, as they talked about this day, you know, this morning, you know, they will swear that she had her baby that night in the stable, and there's nothing in the Bible that says that she had her baby that night. It's quite possible, but it's not, you know, that we read all these things, and because we've been taught these things, most Christians believe that the wise men showed up the night that Jesus was born or the very next day. Well, if you read the scriptures carefully, it says that it was, he was about a year or two afterwards and that they were living in a house and, then, and that they worshipped the lad, not a baby. So we need to be very careful about what we believe. And one of the statements I use a lot of times with people, when, especially my teachers, is when they say something, I'm going, where is that in the Bible? What is your proof of that, of that statement? Because I want to know. Sometimes, especially if I don't know it, now, my teachers I may ask just to see if they know where, how to defend it, but you know, if you tell me something and you want to tell me it's in the Bible, I'm going to go ask, and I don't know that it's in the Bible, I'm going to, where is it? Tell me where it's at. I'm not saying you're wrong or, or anything, I'm just saying I don't know where you're getting it from. You may be right, you may be wrong. I'm, and rather than tell you you're wrong, even I know you're wrong, I'm going to ask you where it is so that you'll go into the Bible and look. 
and try to prove what, what it is. And then you can read and say, oh, I guess that wasn't true. Or here it is, pastor, I've got it, I found it. <laughs> and that's fine. If you find it, that's fine. And we'll look at it and, and go, okay, very good. Because I've studied the Bible a lot, but I don't know every single word in the Bible. I, I've not managed to memorize the whole book yet. <laughs> All right. Verse 5, sing unto the Lord with the harp and with the harp and the voice of the psalm. Well, I don't sing with the harp. I just sing. <laughs> I've never gotten into mu musical instruments. For some reason, it jumped over me. When my, almost everybody in my family plays instruments except for me. I, all I do is like to sing. Tambourine. I don't have that much rhythm. I've already told you I can't sing and clap at the same time. There's no way I can sing and play the, play the, play the tambourine. I just, I can do one or the other, but not both. So I like when people want to clap. I have no problem with clapping. I just have trouble clapping in time and singing at the same time. Uh, I'm not opposed to clapping. You can't walk and chew down. Yeah. Verse 5, with trumpets and with the sound of the coronet, make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. Now they translated this coronet, and I have no idea why it's translated coronet, because it's so far which is the ram's horn of the Jews. Huh? It's not even close to a coronet, so I don't know why King James translated this as coronet. Maybe they didn't know what a shofar was at that time in the 1600, I don't know. But it's the ram's horn, and you want to think about this. In today's world, how many churches would not allow a trumpet and, and shofar to be played during worship? You know, and there's a lot of them out there still. There's a lot more that are starting to get in, into letting the music. When I've been in churches where they started introducing the new, the new choruses and they put brand, uh, bands up there. And I've had more people go, what's a drum doing up there? Well, God says beat the drums and the cymbals and everything else. He's, he's all for all these instruments. And David, when he set up the temple, because there wasn't a lot for the Levites to do in the, in the new temple because they didn't have to carry the stuff around anymore, he started making them singers and musicians, and they had full orchestra in the temple playing music 24-7. A full orchestra, all right? Not just piano or organ or whatever. He had a full orchestra there. Beethoven, most of the classical music written that are now done in orchestras were originally with the words that belong to the songs, Christian worship songs for the entire orchestra. The only problem is we don't know, the, they don't use the words. So they don't, they don't recognize these beautiful songs as Christian songs, worshiping God. But that was his purpose on, on the, that was their purpose, was to create these songs to worship God. And there's words that go with all these old classical songs that nobody sings any, sings the words to. You know, so we look at what they were doing and worshiping, and God says, I want you to sing with the harp. I want you to sing with the trumpet. I want you to sing with the shofar. Another place talks about symbols and all the other things out there. God wants people to worship however they can worship with music. Some people can play instruments and can't sing. Some can sing and not play instruments. Some people can do both. And God is saying, make the noise unto him. And it says, you do this before the Lord, the King. Beautiful song, the Lord. We raise up our voices to him. 
Verse 7, let the sea roar and the fullness thereof, the world and, and they that dwell therein. The psalmist always, very poetic, he always talks about the world itself worshiping God. Talks about the ocean and the roar of the sea. And there is a preciousness to that. When you're out by the, the, the crashing waves and you can just hear God's majesticness, a thunder and lightning storm sometimes can be that way where you just see the magnificence of God and his glory and all the sound and, and you see the controlled or uncontrolled fury of nature. And we see this. You see the, the trees. The psalmists love to talk about the trees waving their hands and they, they, he would bring out that they're, they're just worshiping God as they blow around in the breeze that God has given them to, to worship with. And he's saying, let the sea roar. And it literally means thunder. And if you've ever been around the ocean on a, on a really rough sea, that waves oftentimes will sound like thunder. And it's just a way that he says to bring out. And he says, let the floods or rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. Again, he's bringing that the world itself can worship God. And Jesus, you know, when they came in on the triumphant entry, entry and the scribes and Pharisees said, tell your disciples to quit doing this because, you know, it's blasphemy. And he goes, if they were silent, the very rocks would cry out. And I don't know if I've ever heard rocks cry out, but, you know, I don't think he was being totally uh, facetious on this. I think he really was saying... If these people were refusing to, to worship me, God would make sure, my Father would make sure that I'm getting my praise on this, the most important day of coming in and announcing that I am the Messiah. This is the triumphant entry into Jerusalem was the very first time that Jesus literally said, I am the Messiah. Many called before that, but he always told them, not yet. Not yet. The time is not right. It's not the time. He told the demons to be quiet because they, know, they knew who he was. And the timing was not right for his announcement to be Messiah. It wasn't until he rode into Jerusalem to be offered up as the sacrifice of the Passover lamb that he was allowing them to, to declare him to be Messiah and king. But he said, if they're quiet, the rocks are going to do this. So I'm not going to tell them to be quiet. What a miracle that would have been. But... <laughs> I don't know that many people would have believed that miracle. It would have been a hard miracle to, to believe. But here, the, the psalmists are doing this all the time. They, they take the noise, they take the wind and say, it's, it's the nature worshiping God. And you know what? In the spiritual sense, it might very well be that there's more behind this noise that we are aware of. And maybe when we see things from the heavenly perspective, we might actually see that nature was and is worshiping God. We always take it as figurative. And it may not be figurative. From God's perspective, it may not be figurative. He may be saying, the oceans are, are praising me in, in the way that the world does. These, the trees, when I blow the wind on them, are, are, are praising me. It would be amazing if we find out that this is more than just figurative. This is God actually bringing nature to praise him. And I'm not saying it is, but it would be interesting because it's all through the scriptures that nature praises him. And so it might be more than we give it credit for. <laughs> and then in the last verse, before the Lord, make a joy, uh, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, 
for he comes to judge the earth and the righteous shall he judge and with the righteous shall he judge the world and the people with equity now equity means flatness equality when god judges the world he will they will all be on an even keel there won't be rich and poor there won't be good won't even be good and bad technically because the righteous are coming with him who are righteous those who have him in living in them when we go when we die as christians or we are are raptured we will stand before christ in the bema seat we will be judged we will get our rewards for our works we will receive our glorified bodies and we will come back just as this verse is saying at the white throne judgment and stand before christ as the world is judged and the, they're going to be asked one question and everybody who stands before the white throne ju- judgment is guilty okay we need to understand that if you if they're standing before the white throne judgment they are guilty what are they guilty of rejecting jesus christ if they're standing before the white throne judgment they will be shown every time that they rejected christ every time they had the opportunity to come to god and know that they deserve what they're what they're about to receive and we will see that they deserve what they are about to receive and this verse is one of those verses that the righteous will come with him and we will stand as he judges and the world is flat the, the, there is nobody who can buy their buy their way out they can't hire a lawyer good enough to to defend them on this charge they will stand before god at that point and they will be found guilty because they are guilty and this is something that we need to understand we are going to be forgiven just because of god's mercy and grace and accepting jesus christ and being clothed in the righteousness of christ the rest of the world is guilty we were guilty before we received christ and we are guilty technically without christ we would still be guilty but he has given us his life and his mercy and his righteousness and we will stand before him not for anything that we have done but because of what he did because we cannot be good enough to deserve heaven we cannot do enough good to be pleasing to god and that's what isaiah 64:6 says all our righteousness is filthy rags all right the best things that we can do when we st- when we stand before god if we're standing in our own righteousness is filthy rags so when they stand before god dressed in all their good works they're going to be dressed in filthy rags and he's going to say what did you do with my son depart from me for eternity not a place where we want to want to see not a place where we want to see anybody that we know go into hell is a real place it is eternal punishment there most religions try to teach you that hell is not either either it does not exist or it is not eternal you go into hell and you're annihilated is what the what the jehovah's witnesses say why because a loving god would not put you in eternal punishment well you're getting just what you ex- what you asked for you rejected his son you're going to have that punishment for for eternity and we just want to be able to look and say we need to grab hold of what hell is all about so that we will be motivated to share christ with others because that punishment is a devastating punishment and if we truly understand hell we will be motivated to share the gospel with other people 
because we don't want to see them go to hell. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to, to worship you and to study you. We thank you for your words. We ask that you give us the strength and ability to, to live more for you. Let us find you as our defender and let you help you to follow, help follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.